Welcome to season two of the BioCharisma podcast. Today we have Daniel Anderson. He is a brilliant, uh, I guess you could call it a centropic farmer in Costa Rica. I've had the opportunity to know Daniel for a little over four years now. And I have to say what he's doing in the world of, of centropic farming is astounding. Centropic farming is, I guess you could you could term it as one step above permaculture farming. Um, <laughs> you, you're planting things on so many different levels that at one point what you're what you're cutting down is actually going to be huggle huggle beds for something in the future. It's just amazing. You'll see within the body of the podcast exactly uh, what this entails. This particular podcast has some on-site video as part of the uh, the stream. So if you have a chance to watch that, you'll you'll get a, a much better, bigger picture of what's happening. Daniel and I connected years ago over our love of biochar. And now I have some real numbers, like uh, after after seeing what he's done and he and him relaying to me what people of a similar ilk are doing on their farms with biochar. What we're pretty much finding out is that with about mm, right around 5% by weight of your soil being biochar, you're getting about 300 times the the growth rate, which when you think about that, it, it's a no-brainer then. In the body of the podcast, we talk about why. <laughs> like, why is this biochar uh, so, so remarkable for growth? Check out the videos. The podcast, we also get into the backstory of, of his vision and what he wants to do with growing the world's best fruit and bamboo, specifically durian as a fruit. It, um, I've, I've only attempted to try it a couple times, but he, uh, he was definitely schooling me that I need to try it again. I, I trust him. He, everything this man does is very high quality. So he doesn't have a website available just yet. You can check him out at Daniel Day Mazzoni on Instagram. Um, he does everything first rate. So when his website is up, I'll definitely post it in our Telegram chat. Uh, with the season two, uh, I hope you heard the, the great new music that we have from Drew LaPlante. He is a, an amazing musician. <laughs> he he calls this type of music folktronic and I'm just in love with it. So uh, he's been, he's graced me with uh, some originals to play. And uh, that's what we have now is our bumper music. And we also have some sponsorship, uh, Phoenix Fight Gear. If you go to phoenixfightgear.com, you can see uh, a wonderful array of martial arts apparel. Uh, I was in martial arts when I was a child. I tried to get back into it uh, a few years ago, but my form was not good enough to uh, continue with it because it was kind of messing up my massage uh, business a little and my my hands were getting jammed up so but I do look forward to getting back into it and Phoenix fight gear uh, I have to say with people that know their gear um, it's just excellent uh, especially when it comes to 
the uh, hand wraps, everything dealing with the, with striking, all of their gear that I've tried out has really protected me very well. So big thanks to Phoenix Fight Gear. Big thanks to Drew LaPlante. And uh, enjoy the podcast. I'll see you on the flip side. Daniel Anderson, thank you so much for having me to your farm. Thank you. Thank you and welcome. I really appreciate the, the nice little two-hour look-see of your farm. I haven't seen your farm in two years, and <laughs> the amount of growth that you've had in just two years is just astounding to me. I'm glad that um, that's your observation. Yes. <laughs> it means that we have been uh, efficient and creating a lot of, a lot of uh, nice things here, putting a lot of energy into it. And trying to realize the vision oh man it's um i guess when when did you actually start this farm so yeah we started moving on the farm in the beginning of 2020 basically Mm -hmm. so yeah i was not here all the time the first one two months while Mm -hmm. the project manager manager brought in machines and started Mm -hmm. pushing things around Mm -hmm. and then we know the whole event that happened in the beginning of march right a little bit crazy times in the definitely from there on we started the project right in that time mm-hmm. uh, yeah well to give people a little <clears throat> a little geographical understanding the this particular farm how many miles away from the coast would you say it is kilometers from the coast uh this is uh, about five miles so nine kilometers from the main road and mm-hmm. i think the main road is like another kilometer from the beach mm-hmm. so it's easy to say 10 k's yeah exactly 10Ks from the ocean, and you're in this beautiful bowl of, I mean, essentially the, the landmass around you, like this, this ridge that's uh, to the east of you. How high is that ridge? Uh, the ridge on top is actually 1,000 meters, almost the exact. Like when you start in the beginning, it's like 900, 950 meters. And uh-huh. as you're moving closer and closer to the, to the end of this valley, like the ridge reaches 1,000 meters, basically. So you're just in this perfect area where the, the, you're just getting tons of moisture. You have this wonderful river. You have tons of quebradas. Quebrada is a term that we use in Costa Rica for streams. Um, so I could just see why this particular farm, when you were probably scouting for land, this was just like, from a grower's perspective, you were just like, oh my God, this is, this is going to fit all my needs. Yeah, truly, truly. I mean, as you said, like for being a farmer, I really needed a place where I had very much access to water. Mm-hmm. So I have about five springs that are actually born on the property and they Oof. end on the property, which means a lot of freedom and lots of safety, right? Yes. So that's very important. And that's one thing, but it's also very rainy in this specific region here. Yes. Much more rainy than actually it is out on the coast even. Yes. Yeah. Because that bowl. the moisture comes in the bowl of the ridge catches it and then it just the water just dumps yeah yeah so so this area is actually specifically moist Mm -hmm. and that comes with certain pros and cons yes so yeah. yeah we were talking about that on the video with like the compaction 
problem that can happen when you have these like you know we've had nights where you've had a, a meter of rain <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy like... crazy yeah the rains that came in 2000 yeah in 2020 and 2021 and 2022 they were crazy really crazy i think last year 2022 uh was not as crazy as the years prior to that mm -hmm. Uh, but we had one event last year that was really crazy. Yes. And now we have this year, 2023, when it's very dry instead, super, super dry. And I think we are anticipating uh, an even drier year next year. Is actually. that because of the El Nino cycle? Yeah, exactly. Or That's La Nina? Which one is it? I, I am not fully educated on that. I'm, I, I heard the terms, but I actually don't know exactly what they mean. But, yes. But as we were talking here with some of the... The man, some, some of my consultants here, mm -hmm. uh, they talked about El Nino, El Nina, and mm -hmm. that that would mean this or that, and so on. That this starting year, which is much, much drier than they had for, I don't know how long time back, actually very, very dry. Mm -hmm. So they are actually now going out with emergency warnings, basically, for people and telling them to be very, 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 uh, uh, yeah, careful with their water use, basically. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so this is something I heard actually already yesterday from my consultant. He said that they are now talking with these weather people saying that next year is expected to be much, much drier. So mm. it's going to be uh, um, a pretty challenging time, I guess. And that is probably going to maybe uh, get biochar to maybe shine. Yeah, yeah. Shine in its way, in its, in its properties of actually holding water. And, and releasing water when it's needed to, to be released, you know. It's really interesting. I've, you know, I've recently moved from this zone up into the Ozarks in Missouri, and it's much, much drier up there. Mm -hmm. Overall humidity and everything. I only planted berries this year. I only planted strawberries and blackberries and uh, raspberries. Oh, great. Um, and I don't need to water nearly as much is my friends that don't have biochar. And um, I guess it's a good segue into actually starting to get into biochar. I just want to let everybody know, Daniel and I share a love of biochar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, we truly do. This is the Bio Charisma podcast. It's the Biochar-isma podcast. And uh, um, uh, do you know Itai? Yeah, we yeah. met a couple of times. We haven't interacted very much yet, but, but yeah. I am very aware of him. Yes. Yeah. Well, Itai was the permaculturist that turned me on to biochar. Ah, okay. So he and I were working on a project up in La Fortuna together, and uh, I was lamenting how much I hated composting. Ah, okay. <laughs> and because it was terrible. The yields were horrible, like doing the, the flip, flip composting. Uh-huh. And I didn't, I didn't think the soil was all that good. And he was like, have you heard of Terra Preta? Okay. And I was like, what, what's that? He's like, it's biochar, look into it. And anything Itai has ever told me has turned out to be gold. Oh, that's good. Like everything he's ever said to me, like, and he's so non-assuming. He never like oversteps his boundaries. He's just like, yeah, you should check this out. You okay. should check this out. And so I looked into Terra Preta and I was like, oh my goodness. This is perfect. This is perfect. And because I was already making rocket stoves yeah. and uh, rocket mass heaters. And so I just kind of graduated into making, you know, rocket kilns. Ro I called it a rocket retort. <laughs> okay. And uh, making biochar. And then, you know, I saw on my farm, because my farm 
what my old farm was a southern facing slope that used to be a mamone plantation mamone and coffee coffee <laughs> and soil compaction like because of the way that the the slope of the land and just the abuse that had been on the land like yeah, yeah. it was just straight red clay and it was hard red clay so uh we started making biochar and planting and just doing like, you know, just really simple vegetable beds like near the house. And the main thing that like within a year of using biochar, I noticed that the leaf cutter ants would not go after whatever I planted in the biochar. Wow, that's, that's uh, very interesting. Cause that whole, that whole side of San Salvador is like, it's just a big leaf cutter mound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, we used to joke, there's like a mother leaf cutter, you know, queen, like that's like in the center <laughs> of, the, of the mountain that's just like giving out babies. Cause I mean, they're everywhere. And um, for those of you that don't know, the leaf cutter ants, they're an incredible, uh, they're an incredible asset to the soil because they will go after plants that are unhealthy, they'll, they'll cut and clip their leaves and then they bring them down into the soil and they aerate the soil. So I think there's only like three insects that do that in the tropics and the leaf cutters do that. And so I saw this biochar, these like, just I did two runs of biochar and I think my mix was, you know, somewhat similar to what you're doing mm -hmm. by volume. And the plants were healthier. I was getting good yields, yeah. and the it was the first time the leaf cutters weren't attacking. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah. Yeah, and so for me that was like uh, the biggest sell ever because I had lost like I had spent a lot of money on um, golden Brazilian cacao. Okay. I bought them from a gentleman on the west coast. And uh, it was one of these varieties of cacao that was like the best in the world. And I lost them all to, oh. to leaf cutters. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So Itai turned me on to the biochar and then I was like, whoa, this works so good. And then like a few years later, I meet you and then you're telling me your love for biochar. Like what actually got you into it? Well, it all started when I was growing uh, my chili peppers on my balcony, my terrace in uh, rooftop apartment flat in, in Germany, in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And I started listening to podcasts and watching YouTube clips mm -hmm. from a lot of people that were very experienced with growing. And yeah, uh, sooner, sooner than later, it happened that someone was starting to mention biochar, you know, and mm -hmm. all its properties and qualities. And I think at first time when you hear about it, you like what you hear, but you don't fully really understand what biochar actually is mm -hmm. and what it does, you know. So I did actually started buying it and I started applying it in my soil mixes and I got really good results and everything. Mm -hmm. But at that time, I don't think I really understood it fully exactly all the, all the yeah. things that biochar actually does to, mm -hmm. to the soil. But then I, from, from growing on my terrace in Germany, I realized I want to move to the tropics and start planting fruit trees and bamboo mm -hmm. that became like a very 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 serious interest of mine basically and when i came here i actually ran into peter crane which is a famous tree grower one of the pioneers here in costa rica mm -hmm. who's growing lots of trees and he told me like daniel if you're going to start planting fruit trees here you really need to learn how to apply 
make your own biochar ideally mm -hmm. and learn how to apply that to your trees and you're going to get much much better better yields and mm -hmm. much much healthier trees and and higher quality of the crops as well you know so yeah so that sat with me for some time and i was already convinced about using biochar but then that really locked it in and I was looking at planting quite a lot of fruit trees and lots of bamboo, and I knew I wanted to do that to the best of my cap capability. Mm -hmm. uh, and I knew that I was going to need a lot of biochar. Mm. Um, so I was thinking, like, how, how can I, you know, create biomass and make biochar from? And then I was starting thinking, but wait a moment. I am going to grow bamboo, which is the fastest growing plant on the planet, basically. Mm -hmm. And if doing that and using that for different, different uses, such as construction and mm -hmm. many, many other uses, I was just realizing that I was going to end up with a lot of waste material, a lot of trim. Yes. So I was like, yeah, I'm going to grow bamboo. And with bamboo, I'm also going to make biochar, which I'm nice. going to apply to my fruit, fruit tree plantations. Mm -hmm. So I was already convinced about it. And I was here for, in Costa Rica for two, three months at that first time. And I had already found the, the enterprise, um, what's the name, Living Web Farms in Florida, which is a little bit north of Orlando. Yes. So we got in contact with them, me and a friend. And we actually set up a meeting. So I flew up to Florida and went to, went, went to visit Living Web Farms. Mm -hmm. um, and as I was driving into their location, I see that they have these huge groves with bamboo. Nice. And yeah, upon meeting them, I was asking them, guys, why do you have all this bamboo? And they looked at me and said, what do you think? It's for making the biochar, of course. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's the very, very beginning of me getting into biochar. Can I, can I tell you a similar thought I had with another grass? Tell me. So my assistant, he's, um, he interned with this family that runs the um, indigenous grass, I guess you would say association, I don't know the right term, in, in, the, in the Ozark, uh, northern Mississippi Valley region. What a lot of people don't know is that area of the country from west of the Mississippi to the Rockies was, before it hits the Great Plains, was actually known as a savanna. Okay. Right now, there's so many more woods in that area than what was originally there. Okay. The woods were brought in by human. Ah, okay. But when it was, when you had the Native Americans there, it was a savanna. And my, my daughter's middle name is Savannah. So this is very like oh. near and dear to my heart. And the Savannah, the best way to think of it is sort of like Joe Salatin's view of, uh, of the um, polyphase farming. You had all these buffalo and bison that would eat the grasses, but there were so many of them that they would eat the grasses all the way down to the ground. Then the roots, the lower you cut grass, the further down the roots shoot. And this is the same thing with uh, bamboo, with the rhizomes of bamboo, by the way. So the roots would shoot deeper and deeper and deeper. So the savanna uh, in the North America was this massive, massive region that was essentially like meters thick sponge soil. Wow. Because the roots were so well established of these, of these indigenous grass species. Yeah. And so what has happened as, as the, Europe, 
the European settlers moved through, they started planting all these trees and all these other industries came in. And the native grasses went away because as the bison went away and as the, um, as, uh, well, I think I'm saying the right term, as the bison went away, they brought in cattle. And then they started planting non-native grasses. Uh, and I'm, I'm not familiar with the names of these non-native grasses, but the problem with these non-native grasses is their roots don't shoot nearly as deep. And there's not the, this great variety that you used to have of, of the native grasses. And what I loved was when we first started going out on the farm tour this morning was you brought up this whole term about syntropic planting. And that like immediately got me thinking about the savanna and the grasses in the savanna because it's all about this multiplicity of different varieties. And you have all these different varieties and they're all kind of feeding each other one way or another. Could you, could you describe how you like got into like the syntropic aspect of, of planting and what actually was like the impetus to go that way? Yeah, so in the beginning when I was considering moving to Costa Rica, the term permaculture mm -hmm. came to my mind, to my awareness. Yes. Uh, so I looked into that and uh, while I was doing that, I stumbled across uh, Ernst Götz, the famous Swiss guy who lives in Brazil, mm -hmm. who restored like ecosystems mm -hmm. in Brazil with planting according to these entropic principles. Wonderful. And yeah, to go a little bit further into what that is, mm -hmm. uh, this farming means that you are trying to plant a dynamic system, trying to mimic a natural mm -hmm. forest. Right. And planting the numbers of certain species that are occupying different levels in, mm -hmm. in, in the forest, the stratas, as they are called. Exactly. Depending on the light requirements. You know? mm -hmm. So grass that you were mentioning, for example, grass is a pioneer species, which is uh, very often able to start living in soil where no other plants are basically able to live on. You know? mm -hmm. So they are like a pre-stage for something that might come later. So first the grasses have to be there mm -hmm. and they are sending down roots into the soil and enriching the ground with roots and thereby bringing carbon into the ground. Right. Without carbon in the ground, without any organic matter in the ground, it's very difficult for other more advanced species to actually occupy the space. Mm -hmm. So once they, the grasses establish themselves, the soil becomes much more loose, it allows more water to penetrate. Mm -hmm. And also to hold on to more, more to to more water during mm -hmm. during the the dry times, basically, right? And that allows other species to actually be able to grow into those systems later on in time. Mm -hmm. How that happens naturally, it happens over much, much, much longer times, of course. You mm -hmm. know? But if we try to accelerate those natural processes by incorporate sim yeah similar thinking. Uh, that's the way for us to establish like big, rich, advanced systems that are actually capable of producing building material, material for us and food mm -hmm. and also cooling the ground and providing uh, space for more biodiversity also in the animal kingdom, mm -hmm. right? So it's providing a shelter and living space for birds and insects and fungi, fungus and, mm -hmm. and mammals and, and reptiles and all the other types of mm -hmm. creatures we have out there, you know? while uh, you know, a naked dirt, a naked land basically cannot hold very much life. No, no, it can't. It's, it's really amazing. My friends that have 
started fruit farms here, they've essentially been the ones that have been responsible for bringing the deer back. Yeah, amazing. And bringing all, because now the animals have something to eat. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it's, it's amazing. <laughs> One of my friends, I won't name his name because I don't have permission, but he's a frugivore, plants 100 acres worth of fruit trees, and he was complaining to me that he's like, man, the, the deer are eating all my fruit. And I'm like, we should set up a hunting blind. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, like, seriously. Yeah. And he's like, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, hey, you have more food here than you could ever eat. Nature is going to eat it one way or another. Yeah. You know, that you couldn't harvest all this nope. food. And so you, pr you provided food. So animals are going to come. Yeah. That's just the way, it, that's the way it works. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's um, a challenge that a lot of people will run into after some time, if they, after they are installing these high productive systems that the syntropic systems are, of course, you know. Yeah, so. I'm that way in South Florida. My mom's neighborhood is this old, old neighborhood in the middle of urban Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. But it's like the last neighborhood that hasn't like been touched with like every building, like building zero lot lines. So there's all these established fruit trees. Mm. And I horrified my mom a few years ago because I went on a morning walk and I came back with just like all this food. I had papayas, <laughs> avocados, mangoes, coconut, Suriname cherry. Amazing. And, and, and I'm in the middle of urban Fort Lauderdale. Yeah. And like nobody even like that would have cost a few hundred dollars at Whole Foods. You know, it's just literally just walking down the road there because it's like everything that the these landscapers plant, you know, half the people, half the people don't even know what's in their yard. You know, people will know a banana if they see a banana like a Halconia or something like that. But like actually seeing like like there was this line. It was like you know, half a click long of just Suriname cherries along this metal fence. Just don't, don't, don't. Yeah, I love them. Yeah, yeah. awesome. They're, they're actually in my, in all my systems, Suriname cherries. Oh, Petanga system. Yeah, Petanga. Yeah, they're yeah. one of my most favorite berries. Oh, they're wonderful. Yeah. They, I get that vitamin C charge. That, pa. <laughs> yeah, it really kicks. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I asked my assistant, I was like, I'm asking him to help me plant how to seed my, my farm because I have like, you know, six or seven different grasses there. And this year I went ahead and cleared out in about, I'd say a hectare, which is two and a half acres of my thick forest. I went ahead and um, cut a lot of the smaller trees out. And man, all these different, I'm, I'm new to that area, so I don't know. But I had these, um, the, these wild crafters come in and they're like, you have this, you have this, you have this, you have this, you have this. And now that I took out a lot of the light demanders that were in the understory, and then the canopy is actually allowing more light in, it's just like this incredible like herbal thing that's happening. So I'm in like utter education mode right now. I, I, I'm like, what's that? What's that? Because there's so much beauty. But it's kind of nice because that forest has been, hasn't been cut in over 40 years. So you had like 40 years of like just deposits, you know, just hitting the ground. And you have lots of like old growth oak, old growth hickory, old growth um, 
What's the other one that's there a lot? A lot of old growth maple. So it's really, really pretty. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's, it, it definitely has a, a much different feel than here, but, and also the seasons, obviously. But um, I'm seeing that there's, there are certain things that you can kind of map no matter what ecosystem you're in. And the big thing is, is like getting and having a good amount of carbon in the ground. Yeah. And you're, you're a real pioneer with this in this area. Like out of all the different people I know that have Viveros, um, you know, nobody's going as hard in the paint as you are with, with this much biochar, which gets me excited. You've even used biochar in some of your construction. Would you mind talking about that at all? Yeah, so along the way, learning about biochar, I also learned that you can use carbon as a, as a replacement for different materials. When it comes, for example, to concrete, mm -hmm. you can replace some of the sand content in mm -hmm. concrete with actually biochar. Uh, why is that good? Well, uh, it's good because carbon is by its nature very light usually. Yes. So if you're trucking in material to a project or to a construction, place, mm -hmm. uh, you're not putting that amount of stress on the roads right. or on the vehicles just by that. And mm -hmm. you're not consuming as much fuels as well, you know. Mm -hmm. So that is one thing. That's the practical thing in that sense. Uh, and then, as you also mentioned when we were talking, I also learned that it's stopping the EMF as well, you know. Yes. Which is not always a need for, you know, but it could be utilized for, for mm -hmm. different purposes as well, you know. So I wanted to do a trial here. I was building a filter house where there was, there was not really any need for stopping EMF, but I really want to try to make a construction with There's, an, with there's a neat context that, with that though. Okay. If you're stopping the EMF around water, yeah. the water appreciates that. Okay. So your filter house is filtering all this water. Yeah. You know, and that's sort of like, it's a water treatment plant. Yeah. And I know out here, there's not much, you know, Wi-Fi or anything like that, but still, I bet the water, the water appreciates that. Maybe, maybe that is something also that is. Yeah, because microwave, my, as much as I've studied microwave currents, microwave currents and water, the microwave agitates water. Like literally that's what microwaves do. They agitate mm -hmm. the water molecule. So it's, it's the same way with our cell phones and whatever. So to have that, I bet you the biochar in your walls actually helped. A bit. Yeah. I, I don't have the exact data for it, but I heard that biochar in a certain percentage that, that there are studies in it in, in which ways it can actually improve the strength in certain, yes. in certain uh, what do you call it, like axles or, uh -huh. uh, yeah. But uh, that's not exactly why I did it. I just wanted to do it as a, you know, a fun, yeah. fun experiment. You know? Carbon has a very, stable carbon has a very cool molecular <clears throat> shape you know it's a hexagon so bees build with hexagons <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so and also calcium and carbon love each other okay so most of your binders are calcium and calcium is like if calcium can bond to some sort of carbon atom that's around it it uh -huh. does i mean that's that's the way our bones are made so it's it's really a it's a marriage made in heaven from the way i understand it okay Nice. And then they even now know on the very, very um, minute level of building with graphene, graphene is essentially pyrolyzed carbon 
-hmm. that's one molecule thick. Okay. So it's as, as thin as you can get it. And they find, e well, actually, technically, graphene can be two molecules thick. Okay. So it's literally a plate of carbon like this and a secondary plate of carbon on top. Hexagon, 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 hexagon. And they find with um, when they're making microchips and things like that, that that's by far the strongest, most perfect material to do that with. Oh, okay. So that's why graphene is being used in all these nano um, devices and, nan and the whole world of nano is essentially built on the backbone of graphene. Mm. So I think as you scale up, you know, we we're obviously using much larger pieces of carbon than that. But yeah. it, it's still, it, it, you can see it scaled either way yeah. to the very minute, to the very large. It's, uh, it's pretty remarkable. And, and biochar in and of itself, too, from an EMF perspective, um, even if you're not even looking at it from an EMF perspective, I know jewelers that will put bismuth, which is, has a very high diamagnetic charge, actually has the highest diamagnetic charge out of metals, they'll put bismuth in some of their art pieces mm. because of the way it feels on the body. Okay. So um, I've done like full carbon masks, like biochar <laughs> masks. I, I do biochar, like if I ever want to whiten my teeth, I just make biochar uh, toothpaste. Yeah. It's kind of ironic because my, my mouth will go perfectly black. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then like, you know, five minutes later, it's perfectly white. And so um, there's so much, it, it's a godsend. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah. the diamagnetic charge that it carries um, I know the plants obviously love it because the growth that you have here is unprecedented. I did a podcast last season with, do you know who uh, Curtis Stone is? Uh, I think I heard the name. He's yeah. very, he's, a. Uh, he was, he was called the urban, he was a urban permaculture guy when he lived in the city and then he moved out. Now he does field to farm or farm to field okay. TV. Uh -huh, okay. Huge permaculturist. He roasted my farm. We did a podcast and he like, you know, looked at it and Google Maps and told me what was good about it, what was bad about it and the whole thing. Okay. And um, I think he would greatly approve of your choice and your positioning and everything that you've done here. Even though I don't think he has all that much knowledge when it comes. Well, I can't say that. I don't know if he has knowledge when it comes to like the whole tropical aspect of things. Yeah. You were starting to enlighten me on everything that is durian. Let's get into your love of durian. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is durian? Uh, durian is a fruit. comes from Southeast Asia. And it goes under the name king of fruits. But it also goes under the name stinky fruit or stink fruit. Stink fruit! <laughs> um... So it's a fruit uh, that grows on a tree, a tree that gets very, very tall and can get very, very old. How uh, old can they get? I have pictures when I'm sitting in a tree that uh, they say is more than 300 years old. Wow! Yeah. How big was that thing? Uh, I don't remember the circum circumference of it, uh, circumference, but I think it was uh, about maybe far, sorry, 15, 15, 20 meters in diameter, like. You know, so the circumference times, yes. time, time, times pi, I don't know. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, yeah, and big trees, you know, like mm -hmm. yeah, like a big big sabo tree, basically, you know, like oh, that's that's what they look like. Sort of like a big sabo. Yeah, but they they do have uh, yeah, I don't remember. The sabo tree has also what you call the 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 roots, the what you call the, when the when the roots are like um, what's, it, what's it called. <laughs> Uh, like the stabilizing roots mm -hmm. of the tree, you know, they get like long and flat. Oh yeah, yeah. It's like a big ficus. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's it called? I don't know. I try to remember what it's called. Yeah, there's a specific term which I always remember, but not now. But like, you know, as they grow, you know, up to like 60, 70 years old, you know, they get very tall. About when do they get like uh, 100 feet? Is 30 meters? So 250? Yeah. 200 feet, something like that, you know, when they start wow. to get... Wow! Yeah, don't quote me on that, like, let's say 150, 150 feet or something like that. I think, like, really, really tall trees, you know. So then they got these roots that comes out, they're, like, they, that gets developed from stress, you know, like big winds and everything, so they start to grow these. Um, it's called something special. Damn, I don't remember it. <laughs> Sheer uh, strength stabilizing roots. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, these fruits, they are, yeah, they're growing in Southeast Asia and they are a very important food for very, for very many animals, basically, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I heard uh, information about um, durian being essential food for the orangutans, for example. Oh, really? Yeah. So if the orangutan mom doesn't find durian during her lactating phase, and also after that phase, then the, the babies of the orangutan don't get proper nutrients and they don't get to develop a proper brain system, mm -hmm. uh, including the, the navigating system. So they don't know how to navigate back to their, yeah, very recently made nest, basically, you know, mm -hmm. because they make nests all the time. They make new nests mm -hmm. and new nests and new nests. But they always remember this, you know, and they know how to navigate back to that nest. Yeah. So if the brain doesn't get developed properly, then they don't know how to get back to the nest and that can mm -hmm. provide them with you know, problems. You know? Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's an essential food for orangutans. Uh, what, what role does it play for humans? <laughs> it's a very, very delicious fruit. It's a highly nutritious fruit mm -hmm. and it's very fatty fruit. Mm -hmm. And it's a fruit that for my life, it changed my life basically. And it changed the life for a lot of people that I know. Uh, I have a very good friend uh, from the States. Her name is Lindsay uh, Gazik. She and her Swedish boyfriend, Richard, they are now um, having a website called Year of the Durian. And they are writing books and they offer tours in Asia where you can go on, on tours where you go and visit farms and, mm -hmm. and the farm stays and you get to try all these kind of different cultivars uh, that have been developed over maybe like a hundred years or even more back in time. You know? mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's a very special fruit, basically. You know, it has this special character. It's like a very fatty, creamy, savory fruit. Oh, I can't wait to try it. That has this complexity, which no other fruit has, basically. You know? mm -hmm. So I remember I went on one of these tours with Lindsay, uh, where we stayed on a durian farm, and we had tree-dropped durian. So that means durian that have fallen from the tree that haven't been cut from the tree right it has been fallen from the tree and there they have a, a strategy of preventing these durian from bruising when they are falling from let's say 100 feet above or or 80 feet above 
um, they actually put up like imagine like football nets, like yes. soccer, soccer, yeah. soccer ball nets mm -hmm. uh, under the trees, or they actually tie each and every fruit with a string mm -hmm. to prevent it from falling on the ground. And then they have collectors that drive around the farm with their small scooters with the baskets in the back, and they go and you know empty the nets from the fruit, and they go up to the farm and offload these fruits to the people that are paying like a 24-hour package, meaning that you stay at the farm and you can eat unlimited amount of durians for 24 hours, basically, you know. An, an unlimited durian gorge fest. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so that was a crazy eye-opening experience for me. I mean, I learned about durian before this, but I went on this tour and encountered this fruit, like staying in this environment, and I just realized I want to build my home with bamboo that we talked about a little bit before. Mm -hmm. Plant, bamboo, uh, plant bamboo and plant durian, basically. Yeah. And I want to offer like this kind of experience for people also in Central America, where we are now in Costa Rica. Uh, so that's how it's all begun. And, and yeah, durian changed my life forever, you know, like. Uh, well, I'm, you know, you were explaining to me, I probably had, I did have durian years and years ago, but I probably had it from a young tree. Yeah. And it probably wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't fall. It wasn't like perfectly ripe and fall. Probably somebody picked it more than likely. And um, I remember it being a very weird fruit. Like yeah. it, I didn't have, it was so hyped up yeah. by my frugivore friends. They were like, <laughs> oh my God. And I was like, oh, okay, whatever you say. But, um, you know, with the way you're explaining it makes sense because i just know anything that's vine ripened and comes off in its natural cycle i mean nothing beats that yeah yeah always. so i get it um now now you got me all jazzed to try some <laughs> yeah you too i mean i'm telling these stories to people very often and i do get a chance to introduce people to this fruit yes and some people try it the first time and the second time and many people are a little bit like you know, weirded out about its weird characteristics, you know. Uh, so I usually say that for trying durian, I should try like once or twice. And then the third time is what nails it, basically. You know? Yes. Third uh, time's a charm. Yeah, third time's the charm. I have this friends that moved here recently, a Swedish and a Norwegian couple, you know. Mm -hmm. And they tried it like twice. And then they saw me at the market when I came with my trunk full of fruits. And I was like surrounded with lots of people that were like really wanting to gorge on these amazing fruits. And they came over and like, oh, I would like to try it one more time, maybe, I think, you know. So I'm like, yeah, of course, of course, try it again. And then mm -hmm. next time I met them and they told me like, Daniel, we got the bug. We cannot stop thinking about this. <laughs> can, you, can you please put us on the list and contact us every time you know that we have durian available so we can buy this and, and enjoy this, you know. Because well, you, you were telling me some people dip it in their coffee like it's like, a, like you know, just like a biscuit or something. That's what got me all fired up. Yeah, yeah. So you like, told me that you were into, into coffee and yeah, I do actually have a variety which, is, which goes under the name durian coffee. Uh, it has a flavor of coffee. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing, right? But actually durian and coffee is a very, very good match. Ah. So enjoying it together because it's like a sweet, fatty, savory fruit that people actually do dip in the coffee like mm -hmm. they, you would do with a cinnamon bun or with a, yeah, with some kind of vanilla bun and something that some people do, you know? Yeah. And yeah, eating durian with coffee or just drinking it next, you know, mm -hmm. on the side, you know, it's a very good match. Oh, that sounds so good. Yeah. 
But you got me sold too, because creme brulee by far is like one of my favorite desserts in uh -huh. the world. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my wife makes fun of me because I can live on eggs. <laughs> like I literally, I love eggs and any derivative of egg, mm -hmm. I, I could survive on it. I think when I was a bachelor, I mainly lived on eggs, avocado, sauerkraut, and almonds. I think that was like my, <laughs> my diet for years. And uh, I was really healthy when I ate that way. I don't really need that much animal protein. No. But uh, the egg protein and the egg fat, the choline in egg, all the different, who knows, the sulfur, all the rest of it, my body really appreciates. But uh, I had to, when I was younger, I worked in some very, very like upscale steak, steakhouses in the United States where creme brulee was like the dessert. Yeah. And I always remember at the end of the night, because you can never store creme brulee all that long, so yeah. they would pre-make the, 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 the part that's essentially the egg, the whipped egg, and they would be like, at the end of the night, a bunch of us servers would get to like eat that, you know, and I was just, I always look forward to that. Because <laughs> I love creme brulee, it's so, it's so good. So yeah. if you're saying durian, one of the varieties, because how many varieties did you say you have on this? Bottle? Yeah, I have, um... I have very many varieties here. I have close to 100 different types of Dude, varieties here. Dude, that just blows here. my yeah. mind. Yeah, I mean, to say um, I do have many different varieties of durian, but I also have different types of species of durian. Mm -hmm. So the type of durian that people usually encounter on a trip to Thailand or Vietnam uh, is the regular Cibetinus durian, which is one species. Mm -hmm. And of that species, there is like, you know, a plethora of many, many varieties that have been developed in Thailand, which it has very certain characters, like the Thai durian, they like certain different types of characters, more sweet and different other char characters, mm -hmm. while the, the durian that comes from uh, Malaysia are usually focusing on more bitter tones, mm -hmm. uh, very, very bitter flavors. So when I say bitter, I'm meaning like very delicious, bitter flavors mm -hmm. like like cacao is bitter you know exactly coffee so, coffee yeah, coffee and, and cacao is bitter mm -hmm. so when that comes together with the durian which is very very caramel creme brulee mm -hmm. uh, vanilla custard and all these things together that becomes like yeah total mm -hmm. deliciousness yeah that's wonderful yeah and then you're going to mix and match here right you're going to hybridize some We'll see, we'll see. I mean, that was my intention at the beginning. I thought I was going to do, you know, breeding programs and all of that. And I talked with that one of my very good friends, uh, Richard, who is the husband of Lindsay. And he told me like, Danny, why, why would you actually want to waste so much time on trying to, you want to plant like a hundred different trees, right? Mm -hmm. Or a thousand trees. And maybe just a few of them turn out very exceptional. And you're taking up all this space. Well, while other true. people prior in time have, already done all this work. Why reinvent the wheel? Yeah, so I think, you know, uh, there are like more than 200 different registered varieties of durian right now. Mm -hmm. They're like registered, they go by the, with the letter D for durian. So you have D1, D2, all the way up to D100, yeah, D224 or something like that already. Mm -hmm. And there are constantly new varieties added to that that are like approved by the Ministry of Agriculture and the Durian Association in in Southeast Asia and different countries. Uh, but then you have all the no, uh, non-registered varieties. And mm -hmm. there are like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds from Indonesia, from the Philippines, from Malaysia, from Thailand, and also from Vietnam, you know, they have their own local varieties, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are varieties from all these regions that are like mind-blowing. They're 
incredible and they're so completely different it's like really you go into the bakery and you pick all your favorite pastries you know and that's why i usually say like a really good durian it beats any pastry from the pastry shop mm -hmm. but to make the comparison is like yeah you can go for pastries with jams and marmalade and all these berry tones and flavors and then mm -hmm. you can go to the chocolate and you can have rum and you can have nuts and you can have mm -hmm. more vanilla flavors and you have lighter and denser textures and all of that you know and that's what you are having within the yeah, realm of durian you know it's mm -hmm. like it's the best dessert in the world with no guilt basically it's mm -hmm. grown on a tree in a package like in a very 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 thorny package that's right because that fruit yeah. is like yeah it's super thorny yeah it's super super thorny and like if you are standing on a under a tree when a durian falls and it falls on your face or in your face it, it, it's gonna bruise you or maybe even kill you because they yeah. are big they, they are like from maybe a pound or less for a small fruit up to 25 pounds for the biggest fruits mm -hmm. Like when I was in Thailand on one of my recent trips, I saw durian that was actually weighing 25 pounds. It wow. was like a big montong. Uh, sorry, it wasn't in Thailand, it was in Vietnam actually. Mm -hmm. So that's the montong is one of the most famous uh, commercial varieties from, from Thailand. Mm -hmm. and 25 pounds, like super big fruits, you know. Mm -hmm. But it always strikes me with this amazement that we have perfect pastry, perfect desserts, perfect food grown on a tree in this weird thorny package which is like preventing the fruit from eating being eaten until it's fully developed you know it discourages yeah. monkeys and rhinoceros and elephants and all these kind of animals from uh -huh. eating this fruit with this yeah this very very special package super super thorny and super that's sharp, a very know. common thing like with the with the pejibayes Right, the yeah, by yeah. the thorns. The thorns on the trunk, right? Yeah. You know, fans of this podcast know my dog's name is Peggy Bae. Peggy, and it's ironic because she's a Dachshund. You know, she's just a little, short little wiener dog. Yeah. We thought it would be cute to call her <laughs> Peggy Bae because she's literally the opposite of of what one of those uh, palm trees are. But the peach palm or the Peggy Bae, as they call it down here, I mean, it has four inch spikes, and it has like millions of them on the trunk yeah, yeah and it's like that it's to dissuade anything coming up to eat the yeah. the beautiful uh the fruit that once again has a high oil content yeah it's almost uh it's essentially like a potato mm -hmm. yeah so and it, it's obvious that nature values that very highly to put that many spikes on it, you know? So it's probably the same thing with the durian. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing is there, so it comes in this package, which is, you know, very discouraging for a lot of, a lot of animals from eating, you know? But mm -hmm. once it is ripe, you know, like those animals that can sense a, a, a fresh durian that has just fallen or maybe open up on a tree, they get the first bite of very, very high complexity, right? Mm -hmm. But if a durian falls on the ground and it sits there, it starts to, like when the fruit gets shook of the fall usually, that ignites like, a pro, uh, like processes within the fruit mm -hmm. that starts to develop these smells. So like if you go into durian forest or, a, or an orchard where yeah, durian has fallen on the ground, you can smell if it's like fresh durian smell that comes out. You can sense the gases and you know like, wow, we're up for a real treat here, you know. Mm -hmm. When it passes that 
very, very um, newly fallen state. It mm -hmm. becomes more and more foul, you know, but that smell reaches very far away and also gives a promise to any animal that are like naturally living off these, these fruits that like, yeah, you better start running towards the smell because you have a package of, you know, fully, fully, fully uh, perfect energy, you know, mm -hmm. like per energy and nutrition. Do you know the nutrition, like what's the nutritional profile of it? I don't remember exactly the ratio of fat. Uh, I think the bricks content you can have in durian comes up to 40. I think what, what's the bricks? Bricks is like, uh, I don't know what the term is actually standing for, but it's a way to measure the sugar content in it, you know? Okay. So you can measure it for grapes, for example, you know, like for winemakers, they always measure it with bricks, you know? Like, okay. Um, you can do that with anything, basically. Mm -hmm. you know? But 40 is very, very, very high. Uh, I don't know the bricks of some common fruits. I cannot really make the comparison, but it's very, very sweet. Mm -hmm. And that sweetness, together with fat, mm -hmm. creates this crazy complexity of flavors, but also of nutrients. It's very high in tryptophan, which is like... One oh, of those, wonderful. Yeah, which is one of those compounds that makes us very happy. Yeah, yeah. Know? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah, because there's not... There's not many things in nature that have a high high tryptophan value. No. So that's really wonderful. Yeah, I think jackfruits and I I mean bananas are very common and jackfruits are very common in some of, uh, some places of the planet. You know, uh, some yeah they have some tryptophan. That's what I'm aware of. Jackfruit was a, a love and hate relationship with me because I couldn't eat I couldn't eat it all. Ah okay. Like my trees were so prolific. And why couldn't you eat them? Well, I mean, I get tired of it. Ah, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> it was, I mean, I mean, you talk about 25 pound fruit, some jackfruit are 50 pound. Or even 100, bigger, 120 pounds. Yeah, so, yeah, like the ones that my trees were only like seven, eight years old and they were producing 50 pound pieces of fruit. Yeah. And I was just like, after getting through one in a week with my family, mm -hmm. we we're kind of done. <laughs> and then you <laughs> have like all these other jackfruit. <laughs> so that was a... The animals that that brought in, like the tapasquintes and all the rest of it. I really love jackfruit. Yeah. But it's just like, man, you talk about prolific. Yeah. I mean, to compare jackfruit with durian, I also love jackfruit and I can eat copious amounts of jackfruit. I really like it and I have been like a fruitarian for, for periods of my, my, of, my, of my life, you know. I mm -hmm. live in only on fruit, basically. Uh, but jackfruit is probably not the fruit that I would like travel for and eat every day, only eat jackfruit like morning and, and lunch and nighttime, you know? Mm -hmm. Durian, I would definitely, definitely consider that. And a lot of people are actually doing that, you know? Mm -hmm. So the name on my friend's website, Lindsay's website, um, Year of the Durian, it is it's, uh, due to, there's always like a durian season in Southeast Asia, which is rotating mm -hmm. all over the year, you know? So you have the monsoon that's circulating in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. So if you are like a traveling nomad, which a lot of people are today, they could actually travel to the location where the durian season is mm -hmm. actually at the current time, you know. So that was the idea for year of the durian. You know? So as part of your business plan here, you're going to build a hotel so everybody can come and <laughs> when you have these thousands of durian trees. Just yeah, producing. so I guess I'm extending the year of the durian yeah, know, exactly. in, a, in a way to, to be also here in Central America because there, there are durian trees that were planted like 20, 25, 30 years ago by these movements such as the Anai that came here and want to, you know, they want to bring in lots of different types of fruits and give it also to the indigenous people 
mostly on the Caribbean coast, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of these fruits, they came from uh, people that were working for United Fruit Company, which mm -hmm. is the old uh, banana companies, right? Yes. So there are like some old collections here of certain varieties that have been, sp been spread around. So there are actually some trees that are like quite big, actually, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, but I found out in, I think it was in October last year in Costa Rica that the Ministry of Agriculture, they started handing out informational papers to the farmers and saying, and actually introducing durian. Here's durian. It grows mm -hmm. in a tropical wet environment. Mm -hmm. It can give this and this yield and this return on investment. And yeah, we just want to make you aware of that because it's starting to making a name of itself Great. in Costa Rica, you know, so, so it's, it is really happening. Mm -hmm. And it's for very good reason because, yeah, Durian is, it's fantastic, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, and one of those stories that I want to add to what we talked about before, like how, how, how to entice people and get them hooked, you know. I've introduced um, Durian to a lot of people and a lot of people are like, you know, writing to me, sending me SMS and asking me like, what's, what's about this fruit? I, I, I don't know, it makes something with my body. It feels like it's addictive or something like that. What's, what's inside this fruit, you know? Mm -hmm. So this story repeats itself again and again and again, you know, like I heard- Well, it makes sense. The second you said tryptophan, I instantly was like, oh my God, this is for everybody that's serotonin depleted. Uh-huh, yeah. Because the modern world is all about depleting serotonin. Yeah, yeah. So if you have this, it would be addictive to somebody that has very low serotonin levels. Okay. Because tryptophan is a precursor to serotonin in, in our system. Yeah, well, there you go. And so, and especially people that are really into like the, med the medicines, like all the different med medicinal plants, mm -hmm. those all squash your serotonin. Yeah. So I would think a lot of like the nomads that go throughout the tropics, a lot of them are also into medicine works. Probably. And so I could see that there would be this incredible synergy between, okay, I deplete my serotonin with this, and now I'm going to re-up it with its precursor tryptophan with that. I could totally see that, that being a, a wonderful marriage. Probably. That's, that's really cool. Because, you know, tryptophan is hard to come by. Okay. At least in my limited knowledge, okay. like what I've been exposed to. It's not the easiest thing to come by. So that's really cool. Any of us new parents, like we know we're, we're, we're definitely need our tryptophan because <laughs> of the sleeping, the sleeping arrangements get a little bit uh, challenging with the kids. Yeah. Um, well, that's wonderful. But you're not, you're also, let's, let's get into your love of bamboo also because you have, you're doing the durian. By the way, people, I've taken video, take time to check out the video of, of, of the different areas of Daniel's farm. Um, you're growing much more than just durian, like every different tropical fruit tree that you could imagine. But you're also, you're saying that this, the passion of yours is the bamboo. Like what, what got you into bamboo other than, you know, having it be a, a biomass reserve for your biochar? <laughs> Well, I think uh, a lot of people have encountered bamboo one way or another, you know, in their life. Uh, my earliest memories from bamboo was probably from fishing poles, you know, like mm -hmm. I loved fishing when I was a kid and I used bamboo poles for fishing, you know. They had bamboo poles in Sweden? Yeah, yeah. They didn't crack? No. Oh, wow, that's no, no, great. No, it can be used for a long, long, long time, you know. 
I think I remember I saw like some kind of furniture could have been rattan, but could also have been you know bamboo, you know. Yes. But my parents, I remember that we we went at times to go and get takeout food from Chinese restaurants. Yes. And one of the main things that we always ordered it was like um, beef with bamboo shoots. Yeah, the bamboo shoots. Yeah. So I'm very familiar with bamboo because I ate a lot of bamboo shoots in my in my youth, you know? uh -huh. and I love it, and I still love it, you know. And I, mm -hmm. yeah, I really love bamboo <laughs> shoots. Um, so yeah, when I was in Berlin and I was growing all these plants on my terrace and, and doing all these things, I was watching YouTube and I came across this episode uh, with Elora Hardy from from Bali, from Green Village, where mm -hmm. she was like promoting bamboo and talking about how you can actually utilize bamboo as a very, very good construction material and create all these wonderful, uh, amazing buildings that they have done over there. You know? mm -hmm. So I think at that point in my life, I was, uh, yeah, I was a little bit struggling with finding my purpose in life, what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then when I found growing and I found bamboo, it felt like that started to crystallize. I'm mm -hmm. like, I'm finding something that really, really makes sense for me to devote my life to, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I want to explore this a, a lot more. So I went to Bali and I participated in one of these uh, building classes called Bamboo U, where you learn about bamboo, how to plant bamboo, how to uh, harvest bamboo, how to treat bamboo and cure it, and how to build with it and mm -hmm. design with it, you know. And that blew my mind completely. I'm like... There is no return, you know. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm gonna do this, you know. You know, so Costa Rica had already fallen on my, yeah, on my uh, radar for one of those locations where I would want to do this, mm -hmm. you know. So yeah, uh, that's how it happened, you know, like bamboo for sure, you know. That's awesome. What were you doing? Like, what was your profession before you got into growing? Uh, we were running a company manufacturing uh, hygiene products like antiperspirants and like mm -hmm. body care products uh, so mm -hmm. that's was our main business you know so you already had a really good background with systems then like if you were you know working with a company or managing company that was dealing with actually producing consumer goods yeah you you already had this like preconceived knowledge of what it would actually take from an investment qualitative perspective to get something to market yeah, what I, what I did realize the bamboo, I mean, it, it being like the fastest growing plant, providing all this biomass, you know, mm -hmm. I realized like there's going to be an infinite demand for, for products that you can produce from bamboo mm -hmm. in our future, you know, for whatever you want to do. You want to make cellulose for manufacturing textiles. You want to turn it into biochar that can be utilized for improving of of concrete or, or, or asphalt for highways, or if you want to use it for air or water purifying or mm -hmm. for toothpaste or for uh, addition to animal feed or whatever, you know, like it's, it's going to be an endless use for it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was just realizing this is just the beginning in my life, in our Western world, you know, mm -hmm. realizing that in India or in China or the Philippines or many other Southeast Asian countries, bamboos played like a major role in their societies definitely in so many so many fields basically yeah. you know there are like villages in china that are like everything that they basically <laughs> consume and own and use is made from bamboo they are cooking in 
in pots that are actually bamboo pots. They are eating with chopsticks or other, mm -hmm. other tools, you know, that are made from bamboo. Everything's made from bamboo. Their homes, their houses, their furniture, mm -hmm. everything basically. The bicycles, mm -hmm. toothpicks, toothbrushes, everything, yeah. you know, like. So, <laughs> I mean, of course, there's a little bit of a, yeah, I don't know if I should use that word, but it's very like basic, you know, but with engineered bamboo, I think we can apply bamboo in, you know, endless fields, you know, basically. Definitely, you know. definitely. There's a, it's such an incredible plant, it's such an incredible grass, in the sense that the very outside of it is the hardest part of it. Mm -hmm. And it's the silica-rich denseness of that. And it's, it's by far like one of the, I guess for boys that like to play with sticks, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of the best materials you could ever come across or one of the best plants you could ever come across. And I have to say one of my biggest affinities with bamboo when I lived here was hearing the wind go through it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the, the clocking, the, the talking, the ticking. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, the canes bump, the canes bumping to each other. And also the, the leaves. The leaves, yeah, like yeah. The, It was, there's just like, it's just one of these super calming things. And I don't know enough about music to talk about it in an educated way, but I've listened to instruments that were made out of bamboo. Yeah. That are exquisite. Mm -hmm, yeah. That are really exquisite. So... You know, it, it's definitely a gift with how quickly it grows. You know, it grows up by me too. Oh, really? Yeah, it grows all the way up in those uh, arcs. Yeah, it's not, nothing as big as the varieties here, but there is bamboo there. Yeah. Um, it's much more like a, what was the one that, that you said was an ornamental? They only get about an inch and a half in diameter, maybe. The tropical that we have here, you mean? Or? No, the one up there. Oh, okay. No, I'm not so familiar with the... It was very much like the one of the ornamental ones you showed ah, me today. Okay, okay. Yeah, so you're going to have this, this wonderful commercial farm, massive greenhouses, selling all these fruit trees. And I mean, you're going to be distributing worldwide, I would think. That's hope. That's hope. <laughs> yeah, because out of, out of all the different you know, places where I've been, where they've, they've been growing intensively. I, I've never been more impressed with somebody's innovation with using biochar and then the syntropic planting that you're doing at the scale that you're doing it. I've seen it at much smaller scale, but the scale that, that you're implementing is, is astounding to me. It's really, it's beautiful. And the proof is in the pudding because everything is just like, boom. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I see immense growth on, on everything that I plant with biochar, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, due to different reasons, of course, we have the heat, we have the water, uh -huh. but we also have the, the physical, uh, you know, properties of the soil, you know, that. Well, also, I mean, we have to say this farm was kind of abused before it was a, it was a, what type of palm is that? The, it's the oil palm field. The oil yeah, palm. Yeah, so half, half of this pasture land as it's as it's you know um, categorized as you know because you're planting something and it's pasture you know yeah they had it uh, they had the neighbor across the street he had his cows grazing between the palms to hold back the, the grass right mm -hmm. and with that comes a lot of erosion trampling compaction of the soil and creating something that i 
don't want to work with. You know, I mm-hmm. don't believe in having grazing cattle on sloped tropical lands. You know, that's a no-go. You know, that's how no. we're wearing down the land rapidly, rapidly. You know. Yeah, they're they're meant for the plains or the savannas. They're not meant. Yeah. Yeah. They're not meant for these really steep, plasticky hills. No. So what, what came with that was like pretty troubled soil. Like the first system that we went to, that's like a river valley, right? So we have much more rock and deposited material and like a riverbed, right? Mm-hmm. So that is more fertile and more dark. But if we go up on some of the higher points, we have like this typical red clay soil, which mm-hmm. is very prominent here in the tropics and especially mm-hmm. in Costa Rica. So uh, I've seen how hard it is to start uh, life in these very mm-hmm. compact and anaerobic environments. I measured the pH and it's super, super low. And that's, of course, due to these anaerobic conditions, which always lowers it, you know? Yes. So no matter where you go in the world, I have come to understand that where you have oxygen and water being able to penetrate the soil, and there you are actually automatically um, having an environment that uh, is viable for life. Yes. You know? So that's what I'm trying to create by adding the biochar into my soil, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, from what I can see, it's, it, <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing the good work, my friend. <laughs> is there any way that people can check you out online? Is there any way that people can see your work before you, like, like, I don't know. I don't actually know if you have a presence on the web at all or anything like that. Uh, I don't have very much presence or I don't even have a name for the farm at this current time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in where you find the videos eventually yes. we, we can put a link there so people can click onto my Instagram account, for example. That's my personal Instagram account. And later in time from there, it's going to branch out and become some kind of enterprise where you, people can, you know, find mm-hmm. more information and access to more resources, basically, you know. Because awesome. Like you said, I am intending to have a, a pretty extensive nursery selling fruit trees and selling bamboo varieties that maybe some, no one else in Costa Rica can mm-hmm. provide. Uh, as well as doing, you know, educational workshops and teaching people how to plant bamboo, harvest bamboo, grafting fruit trees and all these other things. And of course, constructing with bamboo, you know. You know, the one thing that you guys showed me here years back was you have these air pots. Yeah. And you're showing me your method of actually getting the bamboo shoot when it's actually edible. Yeah. Would you mind just describing that process real quickly? Yeah, so the AirPods that you're mentioning is basically a, a type of growing container for trees or plants. And my idea was to plant, uh, for example, Asper, which is producing very, very delicious, shoot, delicious shoots. Mm-hmm. There are many other types of bamboos that also do that, right? Mm-hmm. So my idea was to <clears throat> plant bamboo in very, very large containers, like 100 gallons or 150 gallon containers that are half filled with soil and you have your bamboo <clears throat> Excuse me. Your bamboo plant planted there. Excuse me, I'm just going to take a little bit of water. I'm going to take a little bit from you. <laughs> no worries. <clears throat> okay, I'm back. Uh, so yeah, you plant your bamboo there, and as the shoot starts to, do, to develop, <clears throat> the shoot starts to... Um, Gotta cut that out. <laughs> no worries. <coughs> 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 the 
took the drive. <coughs> okay, let's try again. <laughs> yeah, so the bamboo shoots that are um, eatable, uh, they are very, very pristine and delicious and very, very, uh, what's, the, what's the word? Um, tender, tender. In, their, in their early stage, right? Mm -hmm. But as soon as the shoot comes out from the ground and gets exposed to UV, mm -hmm. then it starts to develop cyanide, which makes the first, it makes it very bitter and it makes it very toxic, so basically inedible, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was having the idea that <clears throat> what I learned about growing bamboo is that if you want to do it for shoot production, you can actually pile a lot of mulch around the shoots to keep the shoots from being exposed to UV. And thereby the shoot can actually grow much, much, much taller and bigger, still in the dark. Mm -hmm. And you can harvest much, much larger shoots. Wow. And thereby great. have much more food, you know. What kind of mulch? Any kind of leaf litter you can Just find. Just anything to block anything the Anything that blocks, you know. Okay. So yeah, that was the idea. So if you're having these big containers, the, there will be space for the shoots to shoot up as high as the container actually basically provides. Mm -hmm. and you can just dump in, dump in these leaf litter materials or something else like that and block that. And then you can just, when you identify that the shoot has reached like maybe one foot, two foot, maybe three feet of a height, mm -hmm. you can still harvest it at that height and still have a very, very tender and delicious sweet. Where, where do you detach it from on the rhizome? Uh, I mean, you can break it off or you can cut it off, you know? Because that would be a great way just to propagate more, more bamboo. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you don't want to harvest the shoot before it has actually developed any leaves okay. on, the, on the actual cane, you know? Yeah, yeah. So that's something that shouldn't be... Yeah, I would probably only see it being done in a container where you cut it out from the ground, you know? Yes. And... These air pots that I'm using is, is consisting of a, a panel wall that you are folding around and creating like a tubular container that you attach yeah, you can attach to itself by small screws that you can open and close. Mm -hmm. So you can actually open, take out the clump, you can cut out half of the clump or a quarter of the clump or even smaller, like cake pieces basically. Mm -hmm. And then you can close it up again, you can refill with soil and the bamboo can again fill out that space and develop new shoots again so you can open and close mm -hmm. and reuse the space you know? those air pots are so cool yeah they are yeah they i, I what, what i tell people is they are the formula one of plant pots basically mm -hmm. because they're providing so many amazing features for for growing plants or trees in them you know mm -hmm. so when i presented this bamboo growing uh, method to the the producers they were actually quite excited about that they said they haven't heard that or seen that but that's a new way of using it and I have been using it this way actually you know? mm -hmm. like if I have a clump in a very big pot which is like 100 gallons 150 gallons and it would be way too heavy to handle for staff to lift this clump out if I don't have access to a backhoe or a or a tractor with a fork or something like that, we can actually split it up in pieces. Mm -hmm. You can still get a quite big established unit to plant in your field if you want to do that, right? Right. Unless you're buying like complete clumps and you want to load like five, 10 clumps on a big straight truck and just truck it away and just plant a big clump mm -hmm. at once where you are going to be able to have big shoots already producing if you that's what you want to go for or big, big canes for harvest for construction purpose, you know.
<laughs> so yeah, that's that's what I'm doing with the AirPods. What varieties is it only the Asper that you're you're doing the bamboo shoots with? Like how big of a shoot have you gotten that you've eaten? Um so Asper is one of the best varieties for shoot production. Then you have uh, I think Latiflores is very good. I think Brandisi is very good. So these are all dendrocalamus species. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have um, which is the sweet shoot monastery. Yeah, so it's Tarsostachis siamensis sweet shoot. That's mm -hmm. a very specific one which has very, very sp uh, sweet shoots. You can eat them basically raw. You can just pull them off, and put them in your mouth and eat them, you know. Oh, wonderful. And then there's one species that I actually forgot, but I tried in Thailand in one of the collections that is like, you can actually go in and take the cane. You can rip off the cane and you can eat the cane, not just the shoot, you know. Wow. So bamboo for you who don't know about eating bamboo, you know, it's a staple crop in many, in many Asian countries. I think in Taiwan it's the second largest staple crop. Uh, a staple food, sorry. Mm -hmm. So it becomes the staple crop as well, right? Yes. Staple food, number two and number three in Taiwan. And in China, it's consumed in insane numbers, basically. Mm -hmm. so, uh, well, they're getting their silica. Getting their silica, lots of fiber. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's That's wonderful. Yeah, because I wonder if it acts like sort of like a... Uh, what's that type of starch called? There's a prebiotic starch. Okay. It's um. I'm forgetting what it's called. It, there's a. It's in when I think of asper and I think of how meaty the walls could get. Mm -hmm. I kind of think of that starch. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I wonder. I wonder if it has like a, a prebiotic quality to it. Okay. I know that there is one species of bamboo which I forgot, and it creates a type of deposit inside the canes that you can extract. And it is some kind of compound which is highly, highly nutritious and being sold at crazy prices, you know. I don't remember the name, so <laughs> we can put it on the, on the website or something like that, you know. <laughs> it's, it's a bamboo durian cross in the, mid, <laughs> in the middle of the, in the, middle of the uh, you know, calm. There's a, a, a durian that's pre-peeled and just <laughs> waiting for you. Another thing that I think is very worth to mention, I was at the World Bamboo Workshop in Vietnam in, in August last year. Uh -huh. And there it was uh, explained to me that bamboo is going to be very, very dominant in the industry of producing ethanol because it generates so much starch and sugars that you can actually yeah. turn into alcohol. So it like outcompetes sugarcane and all the other crops by far, you know. Well, this gets back to the whole, the, mar the perfect marriage between biochar production mm -hmm. with bamboo. Yeah. Because if they're saying it's great at ethanol production, that means it has a high carbohydrate content. Yeah. And the thing is, I'm learning now how to smoke cure foods. Yep. That was one of the ways, if you didn't have salt, you would smoke cure foods for them to last. If you didn't have refrigeration or salt, that's what you did. And you and I earlier were talking about smoke curing bamboo. Yeah, right. So you could have this perfect energy loop with your system where you know you harvest your bamboo, your construction grade bamboo, you're you're curing with the smoke that's coming off of your biochar reactor and then you're using all the biochar to replant, you know, all your different varieties of of bamboo and other foods 
it's just this wonderful stacking function definitely yeah permaculture thing and then all the while that smoke isn't just going up into the atmosphere it's doing work for you yeah definitely yeah and that work is like so super beneficial because you're not importing some petroleum-based product trying to move away as much as i can from it you know? yeah, yeah like well, if that will ever be possible then that would be great you know but at least trying my best and innovate and pioneer in some fields you know yeah, I did a podcast with a gentleman, Sky Huddleston, where they're, the engine that they're building, the Bork engine that they're building, will run on, on alcohol, run on hydrogen, run on syngas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And one of the things I, he was educating me on, it was one of the fuels that was used in World War II when oil was really, really uh, hard to come by, was it's called a coal slurry. Mm -hmm. And essentially, they just take charcoal or biochar, yeah. and they... They crush it and they make they mix it with water and it actually ignites like you can get fumes off of it for fuel okay i never knew that so how do you mean like how, how would that be i don't i've never seen it in person but he was he kept telling me they use it in mining okay it's one of these things and they use it in very in compression engines they'll use it like a diesel oh okay it explodes. Like you put it, you compress it, it explodes. Uh -huh. You compress it, it explodes. Oh, wow. And so it was one of these things that was used as a, as a, a fuel amendment and also a standalone fuel during World War II. Mm. And still very, very large industry will use it because it's so much less expensive than petroleum. Yeah. So I was like, whoa, that's really cool. That's, that's another thing with the biochar. So if you're making ethanol, you could then also, as you pyrolyze your, your bamboo, then you could also make this, this other product that could be used in diesel cars. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when I was researching and learning about bamboo and the uses and, and how to produce biochar from bamboo or any material, basically, I was just thinking, how could I utilize, you know, the bonus heat, all these co-products, the, the, the wood vinegar, mm -hmm. And the heat, either like if you're making ethanol or if you're just capturing the heat on drying pottery or maybe a steam engine for making, having a sawmill running exactly. or dehydrating fruit or, mm -hmm. you know, all these things. Or so just drying wood if you need to dry wood, mm -hmm. you know, with added heat, you know, like just like now I'm just mentioning a few basic examples. There are so many more ways you can harness these resources Definitely. in this process of alchemizing uh, your, your products here, you know. Like, oh it's so great if you're producing heat i see that as a good thing yeah or pumping water or whatever you know, definitely like, you know heating water like for your home heating water and storing yeah. that yeah like even having it you know create a thermosiphon system yeah like there's so many benefits to it you could have your own you know termar here <laughs> it it's wonderful yeah the the there's so much embodied energy and that's something i always impress upon the audience is mm -hmm. that scarcity is it's not real it, that's a it's a thought form yeah you know nature is always providing there's so much abundance it's just a matter of listening and educating and investing in knowing how to convert what's around you into what you need and in that conversion process having a reciprocal relationship with nature so you're not just taking whatever you're converting into your own energetic needs there is some 
functions that can be stacked where you can give that energy back to the land and it will sing. And your land is singing. Like the difference from when I first saw it to now is just like, oh. <laughs> so man, good on you. Thank yeah, you so much for taking you. the time to, to come on the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me here. It's been a pleasure. Alrighty, ladies and gents. I hope you're getting the picture now with biochar. <laughs> this is the BioCharisma podcast after all. So whenever I get somebody that is that involved with biochar, you know, you know we're going to go into it. There is an amazing synergy between taking care of your water one way or another, whether you're vortexing it, whether you're putting it through flow forms, whether you're putting it through some sort of magnetic wiping system, that coupled with biochar in your soil, effective microorganisms, and also then adding you know, local effective microorganisms. There, there's just a wonderful extra production that can occur. As we move forward in the implements of like the, the chemical world, the implements of the petro industrial complex become more expensive or harder to get, it's gonna become more and more important to have the capacity to convert the local biomass into something that actually does work for you. And out of all the systems that I've had my mind <laughs> immersed in the last 15 years, there's nothing that's been been better, uh, higher yield relative to the amount of energy input than biochar. And so my company, uh, Biochrisma Holdings, we're moving forward with building biochar kilns in the Ozarks and more than likely we'll build some down in Costa Rica also. I built small little homemade ones and tomorrow I'm going to go pick up all the cans, everything I need to actually uh, do the videotaping like I've promised and, and have, have all the materials present. Um, so I can do tutorials so all of you out there can, can get that. But I hope you were able to receive from Daniel Masoni the, the absolute, excuse me, Daniel Anderson. He's Daniel Masoni on Instagram. I hope you were able to receive why you do biochar. Um, I've heard from locals here in Missouri that if you just raise the uh, carbon content of your soil by 1%, just 1% by weight, you in, you hold three times the amount of water in your soil. That is astounding. He's up at six, he's between six and 7% in his soil and he's having 300 uh, X uh, production. And I have to say, before I left Costa Rica, my farm, we planted bamboo from the rhizome, which is the root. And that bamboo exploded. I had full mature bamboo canes that I could use in construction within five years. Um, I didn't start using it to about eight years in because you want to see a very specific type of, of fungus that's on, on the canes. 
but I had canes that were a hundred foot tall and at, at five and six inch diameter in a very short order. And that was when I was just using carbon. I didn't even use biochar. And so there's all these things with gardening and planting and farming, you know, best practices, appropriate practices for where you are in the world. But there's nowhere in the world that I've seen where biochar has been used, where it hasn't been just an absolute benefit, like an extreme benefit for people. So I'm in a very short order on my website, TopherHQ.com. We'll have the educational template, uh, the video. And for those of you that contributed to, towards that, um, I, will, I will send that out to you uh, privately. And um, this, this year at the Veritaria Times Festival in Missouri, um, I'm going to go ahead and do a couple of walkthroughs of a homemade machine. And then we're also going to be selling the, the biochar that I'm making from the larger kilns. Um, it's, it's really significant the, uh, how, how much of an inspiration Daniel Anderson has been for me and not even to speak of the construction applications like this is this is something where the god provides through nature and nature is so abundant there is an unlimited supply of biomass and uh, we'll definitely be doing our best to convert somebody else's waste into our treasure so thank you for follow for following us um, please share this yeah, season two, we're working towards having really good production value. We're going, we're adding a, a live stream. We'll start that live stream next week. I will announce this weekend what, what day we're going to do that. And uh, my guests have been excellent. All the interviews, I've done a few interviews already that are, that will be posted along, you know, I'll, I'll fill you guys in with everything and contacts. This is just, hopefully you can see that we're building towards the goal of creating a curriculum, an educational curriculum that the young ones can take and really make their world a better world. Um, I'm into electroculture and magnetoculture and effective microorganisms and biochar, all because these things really are a way of just paying homage to the, the overall abundance that we're provided for all the time. So thank you for joining us. Check us out on Telegram. Um, and I guess we're going to be doing YouTube pretty soon here. Um, I've been reluctant about that because they usually kick me off. But um, yeah, we're, we're on BitChute. We're on Gab. Um, what else are we on? I think we're on Odyssey. Yeah, so just check us out. I see that Stitcher is closing their, their doors of operation in August. So I'm definitely on Podbean. And if you guys are Spotify people, definitely give me a rating on Spotify. <laughs> I saw my numbers on Spotify. I was like, oh, I have like two people on Spotify. So not that, that any of that stuff really matters to me, but if you do appreciate the podcast, uh, share it. That's one way of showing your appreciation. And then also uh, the donations tab at Topher HQ. Thanks, thanks again to Phoenix Fight Gear for sponsoring the podcast. And um, 
also for Drew LaPlante. This song is so, it, it, it's my new favorite song. I'm listening to it all the time, even when it's not part of the podcast. So everyone enjoy your week and I'll see you soon. You ought to know. You ought to know by now